rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, Bob Hutchins is here, and on the phone with me today is a special guest, Dr. Jerome Libba. I heard him on another podcast a few weeks ago, and I said to myself, I've got to get this guy on the phone. He's just down the road a little bit, a few hours in Georgia from where I am in Nashville. And uh, so we're going to have a great conversation today. I think you're going to love it. Brief background. Dr. Jerome Libba is an identical twin, so we're going to go into that. He's not originally from the USA. They immigrated from Zaire when he was very young. He lost his father at 14 shortly after his family became legal here in the United States. His twin says that it seems as if his father worked his whole life to make sure they were safe and provided for, and once he knew that, he felt released to rest. Dr. Jerome suffered his first debilitating migraine when he was 17, and then he's averaged a separate migraine every three to four days with chronic pain and fatigued. This took him to uh, study and understand the brain. He is a functional neurologist, and he practices his own practice down in Atlanta, in Georgia. And also, one of the things we're going to delve into today, for the most part, is is his understanding of the Enneagram. And I know many of you on on the podcast, many of you listeners have heard me refer to the Enneagram. Uh, and what a what a tool of self-awareness it's been in my own life. But Dr. Jerome approaches it a little bit differently. He approaches it from the neurology, the actual brain functionality of the Enneagram. What's going on in, in the brain of a human being when they tend toward uh, a certain number? So we're going to explore that a little bit, uh, a little bit deeper. He also, he and his brother have also de- developed something called neurotheology, which I don't know much about, and I'm excited to jump into it. So rather than hear me talk, let's talk to Dr. Jerome. Dr. Jerome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. What a, what a gift and a pleasure. Awesome, man. So, so you're down in just outside of Atlanta, correct? Yeah, actually uh, in, the, in the heart of downtown in an area called East Atlanta Village. Fantastic. Is that kind of like East Nashville here? It's a cool hip place to live. It's definitely, uh, you know, I am definitely the only clinic in the area. Uh, this is this is a food haven. Uh, it's it's one of the best known areas for nightlife and for incredible food. So it works out really well for my patients because there's no one here before 5 p.m. Uh, mm-hmm. But then if you want to come and get a really good meal. I share a parking lot with uh, one of the rising chefs for the James Beard Award this year. So uh, it's a it's an amazing place. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now you got my uh, some salivating. I'm hungry. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background. I think the the journey from Zaire uh, for for those for those people who who don't know uh, Doctor Doctor Jerome and can't see him right now. He looks like your average Atlanta white guy. So tell me about the connection with Zaire and Africa and all that good stuff. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an interesting space because most people who look at me, especially when they hear my name is Jerome, uh, there's always kind of 
this uh, this expectation of who I would be and what I would look like. Uh, so when I tell people, you know, my brothers and I are the first people in over 400 years born outside of Zimbabwe. Uh, it was called Rhodesia before. My parents are Zimbabwean. We were born in South Africa, but we moved from South Africa to Zaire specifically to be able to move to the States. Uh, my dad was a foundryman, a forge worker, blacksmith, uh, but also um, more than 10 year combat veteran of the Rhodesian Bush War. Um, and, you know, we just had a very interesting course of action to get to the States, but we actually uh, went from South Africa to Zaire uh, after everything was happening in the sub-Saharan African region that my dad just, you know, he fought in the Rhodesian Bush War and he was in South Africa and everything that he was looking for was not only a healthier life, but an end to uh, much of the nature of what had happened with regards to apartheid and, and so much of the racial and, uh, and social conflict that was happening. And with the way the, the countries were going, he just saw the writing on the wall and said, I don't think, you know, this is this is going to be the place long term for those for folks in the states who don't understand. Uh, most of the sub-Saharan African countries have no middle class. So you're either wealthy or you're not. And we were certainly not. Uh, so my dad thought to himself, I, I don't have a way for this to or an avenue for this to be beneficial or profitable for us from a from a lifestyle standpoint and an education standpoint. So we actually uh, fled Zaire in the middle of the night uh, under the, black, uh, the back of a, a taxi under blankets and landed in the States with $100 in two suitcases uh, on asylum status as refugees. So wow. most people look at me, <laughs> I look like the, the traditional kind of classic East Atlanta village white guy with gauges and glasses and a beard. Um, but in all reality, my, my, my lived experience and my, my story started out as a uh, uh, a poor immigrant kid to the States on, on asylum status as a refugee, uh, just a, a slightly different aesthetic than, than most of the folks that, that fit that profile. Mm. Well, how old were you when you moved here? We were six and a half. My twin brother and I were six and a half. Um, okay. My older brother was eight and a half. Okay. And what was, was there an adjustment period? I mean, moving from Zaire to, where did, did you move to Atlanta? No, we actually moved to Knoxville. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, we moved all over the Tri-Cities area, uh, Maryville, Morristown, a, a really rural place called Mohawk that only had 26 people in the town and like 3,000 cows. Um, it, uh, it was a culture shock for sure. I mean, you have to think, my, my dad spoke 13 languages and nine of them were tribal. Um, you know, he, he was a very interesting human being. And uh, my wife, my mom was a field nurse in the in the Rhodesian War. So, you know, when we landed in the States in Knoxville, it was January. It was snowy. My dad was 35 and he'd never seen snow. Mm-hmm. Um, so the uh, the experience was really, you know, I am grateful in hindsight for it as a result of it giving me so much, uh, so much clarity and, and kind of appreciation of the different perspectives of, of each people group. But, you know, one of the bullet points I share with folks is, we went to 11 different schools before I graduated high school, and three of those schools we had to change because of uh, because of bullying as immigrant kids, uh, including one high school. It was uh, it was a very interesting experience being a third culture kid and not realizing what third culture even meant uh, until my late 20s. Mm. That's fascinating. And, and so did that shape a lot of who you were? I mean... Obviously, you had an identical twin brother that, um, you know, that that had to be, I guess, comforting. And you always had someone with you. Is that is that how it all worked out? 
Yeah, you know, in, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, not. Um, I will say that my, my twin brother and my older brother and I are best friends. We're very fortunate that, you know, when you move to the States with six people uh, and you live 10 minutes down a gravel road and 25 minutes away from civilization, you kind of got to love the ones you have. Um, and fortunately, uh, my brothers and I have developed incredible relationships that moved to different parts of the world, and now we're all within an hour of each other again. Um, but the thing that was interesting for me is I graduated high school 85 pounds heavier than my twin brother. So when folks talk about having identity issues and body image issues and body dysmorphia and kind of these spaces around your personal value, aesthetic, self-worth kind of conversations, you know, most people wonder what they would look like if they were 85 pounds lighter. And I knew every day I rode to school by looking in the passenger seat. So it was one of these things where my, my twin brother was this epitome of agrarious uh, kind of seven nature and energy. And so was my older brother. They're so, so gifted in, in that space. And I was not. So the, the contrast of constantly having uh, the idea of what you should be like in terms of popularity and what you should look like in terms of aesthetic as a teenager was a really challenging space to to work through, but not because of anything that my twin brother did, just the nature of, of the environment and kind of the spaces it created. But fortunately, uh, incredibly good relationships with, with both of my brothers. And I'm, I'm definitely grateful that we had each other at, at the same time. It was a challenge to have the contrast. Wow. How old, how old were you when your, when your father died? 14. Yeah. He passed away a week before Thanksgiving in 1997. Um, and we were, my twin brother and I were freshmen in high school. What was that like, Jerome? What is that? I mean, I know that that was painful, obviously, but tell me a little bit about the story surrounding that. Yeah. You know, it was, um, I, I, there are a few things that I would, I would, I would not ever wish on anybody more than, you know, some particular diagnoses that I work with as a clinician and, and, and losing a child or a spouse, but definitely losing a parent as a freshman in high school <laughs> and, and being in the spaces that we were in, in in North Georgia was definitely a mixed bag. You know, um, my dad was a, was a two-pack-a-day smoker for 30 years. Wow. And he also uh, was a, a metalsmith and a blacksmith and a, and a foundry worker, which is kind of like a, um, a metal version of a coal miner. The challenge is that you're inhaling so much stuff, what's called particulate, and even that alone can put your lungs to work. But you do that with a two-pack-a-day habit for 30 years and the amount of stress that my dad had. Um, he actually had a stroke and a heart attack on the same day in Bristol, mm -hmm. Virginia, when I was uh, with him while he was doing an out-of-state contract uh, freelance work. And they found out that he had a hole in his heart um, that was significant. It was supposed to have closed by the time that you're two, and if it doesn't, the mortality rate is very, very high. Um, and it, they ended up finding it the day that he had the stroke. And the surgeon said to my mom and dad, you know, it's a good thing you didn't live an active life. And they both burst out laughing because my dad was a frontline gunner for over 10 years in a war, running with a gun big enough that you needed a second person to carry the bullets. You know, mm -hmm. so the idea of him having a passive kind of restful life. So the fact that he even made it to five, never mind 42, was a miracle. But what ended up happening was uh, he had open heart surgery that discovered the emphysema. Six months goes by, 
Um, and he gets cleared by the doctor and they said, you know, everything looks really, really good. He had stopped smoking completely at that point about a month before. And it looked like we were on the right track. Um, and my brothers and I at 14 and 16 had been running my dad's foundry because we had been working in his foundry for six years, like immigrant kids do. My dad had no concept of child labor laws in the States. He, <laughs> kids are free labor and, and we had a good trade. We worked for him and he gave us dinner. And we felt like that was, you know, that was a reasonable offer. Um, but what happened was we ran the foundry for six months because he wasn't allowed to lift anything heavier than a milk jug. And when they cleared him, I petitioned and said, you know, we haven't done anything in ages, man. If we could, if we could do something fun, that'd be awesome. And I asked if we could go to a movie. And my dad uh, said, well, I'm going to stay home and I'm, I'm going to watch Creflo Dollar on TV and with my bipolar grandmother who lived with us our entire life. She immigrated with us from, from Zaire. And uh, unfortunately, halfway through the movie, he fell asleep and he didn't wake up. Um, he just he just passed away. And I think probably the most interesting experience, and this is kind of the the nature of you really never know what everybody else is processing and going through. And I think sometimes, especially as adults, we have the impression that the only people that are dealing, dealing with very difficult things are our peer group who have hit adulthood. But, you know, you have to think about the fact that my Mom and my brothers and I got home. My mom realized that my dad was gone, but in her panic, uh, she's 5'1", and my dad was 6'2", 250. He's a big dude. Mm. She grabbed him by the ankles, pulled him off of the recliner, jumped on top of him, and the very first hit, she broke his sternum, trying to give him CPR, because she knows how to do it. She's done it before. And my twin brother and my older brother and I are standing at the top of the stairs, and that's things like that that you don't forget, that sound, that, mm. that space, that room. It's called a limbic attachment, attachment in neurology. But, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in a classroom a week later with my peer group who are making fun of the fact that, you know, they're collecting stamps to mail us back to Africa. They're asking what it's like to wear clothing and use indoor plumbing for the first time. And you're getting bullied for being a heavier version of your twin brother. And all you hear is the sound of a sternum breaking over and over and over again. Mm. So it was, uh, man, it was, it was, <laughs> it was a very challenging year, uh, that freshman year of high school for sure. But it's, you know, I, I have learned in the spaces of grief and my wife and I have buried three out of four parents. The only one that's still alive is my, is my mom. I've learned through these spaces of grief as well as being a patient and a provider and all these other things from neurology to spirituality to everything else. Um, I think pain is the greatest educator on the planet mm. if, if it's reconciled and made meaningful. If it's not, it will bury you. Um, mm. You know, so for me, it's, uh, it's been the most challenging spaces to be in emotional, spiritual, physical pain. Um, but to, to use that in ways that can be reframed and reshaped and, and repurposed, I think, uh, to be honest, if, if I hadn't, I wouldn't still be above ground. And my history has, uh, has suicide attempts in it. So this is all spaces where these entire arcs of all of these different experiences have really given me such a healthy appreciation for, you know, the fact that other people are going through really heavy things and we oftentimes have no idea. Right. That's right. That's right. Well, talk to me about your life after that. I mean, I, I mean, I want to get into your practice and, and, and the Enneagram and your, your approach to it, but, but I want to, I want to stay in this journey. 
um, obviously your high school years. What, what, what was, what, what did you do after high school? Yeah, you know, my, it, it, most people would look at my, my art from 14 to, to 36 where I am now, and it would, it would read kind of like a comedy of errors um, or a badly written uh, SNL skit. Um, but what ended up happening was we went through high school, graduated. My twin brother and I went to Phoenix for an undergrad in digital animation and film. Uh, you know, obviously an emotional connection to film, but I loved uh, digital animation. We finished the degree. I come back home, and a few weeks before I come back home, my now wife, who was one of my friends for, for years in the youth group that we went to, her mom passed away. And when we landed in, back in, in Georgia, this was in North Georgia, North Georgia Chattanooga, Tennessee area, um, I, I reconnected with her because no one else in our youth group had lost a parent. And we hit it off so quickly that we said the day that we started dating was uh, the day that I came home, August 29th of 2003. And a year and a half uh, later, uh, in May of '05, we were we were married, uh, trying to pursue doing a portfolio in digital animation, working at a mental hospital in Chattanooga. And uh, six months later, we took full guardianship of her 12-year-old brother, and we raised him from 12 to 19. He's now 27. And at the time that we took him in, my wife was 19 and I was 21. And wow. at that point you kind of got to suspend the idea of just sitting at home and working on a portfolio uh, for digital animation because you've got to, you've got to bring in enough money to, to, you know, be able to care for a 12 year old. And so what ended up happening in this space is my twin brother and my older brother are still working really actively and heavily on music and they're both musicians and they, uh, they said, Hey man, you can't just sit and watch. You got to figure something out. So you got to figure out harmonies. And I'm like, I've never sang. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, long story short, fast forward, we're doing music full time within a year, uh, within two years, we're, uh, making albums and we're touring and we are doing really, really well. Uh, we recorded with, uh, Clay Cook, who's now part of Zach Brown band and had a, a a pretty lengthy time in Nashville. <laughs> we were actually listed as one of the 25 artists to watch for by CMA in 2008 at the same time as Lady Annabelle. And all of these things were happening. And so I'm in the midst of raising a teenager, newly married, wrestling with, you know, over uh, 100 migraines a year from, from 17 on. And then we're in the middle of doing this tour. We've got a song that's number 88 on, on Billboard. And we get a call and the guy who's financing everything says, I need you guys to come home uh, tomorrow morning. My wife's cancer has come out of remission and her health insurance company has dropped her. And I need the funds tomorrow. Uh, and we had about a three and a half to four year effort uh, stop literally overnight. Um, and we came home and the, this gentleman who was just such a gift and so full of grace, um, tore up the contract and um, negated anything that we owed him. He just said, you guys don't owe me anything. And it was, it was such a, it was so heartbreaking because not only was there so much tied up in that for us, but you know, you watch this person who has a dream of seeing us succeed. Not only does that die at the same time, but a few months later, his wife passed away. Um, so everything shifted. Uh, I was no longer in digital animation. I was no longer doing active music. And I didn't play an instrument or sing lead. I did harmonies. So both of my twin brothers moved into, because that kind of momentum, all of us felt at that time that this was this was fairly providential and, and serendipitous. And 
and we just, you know, we weren't built for it. We, we were in a good space where the opportunity was there, but we didn't, we didn't have the desire to, to consistently keep chasing music down for the sake of glory. Um, so my twin brothers and my twin brother and my older brother, uh, moved into worship pastor positions and I'm sitting there going, huh, the last two major life choices have, have kind of run aground. Um, what do I do? And in that space, I was uh, 26, 25, and realized, you know, I've gone to 21 specialists over nine years to get a diagnosis for what's called the Chiari malformation, only to find out just last year that instead of thinking we had compression on one side of my brainstem and a, and a herniation in part of my brain that blocks the fluid from entering my brain, uh, I actually have compression on all four sides. Uh, due to being run over by a car when I was eight, a couple of head injuries in high school and being hit by two drunk drivers before I was 21. It turned out that we just had a lot more structural damage than we previously thought. But 10 years ago, we, I said, man, if I've, if I've gone to all of these people and all I've gotten after spending $100,000 is a diagnosis no one knows what to do with, I, I feel like there's got to be something better than the purgatory between the traditional and alternative communities that don't know what to do with people like me. Uh, and that led me into pursuing a doctorate specifically in chiropractic because I appreciated the philosophy and the approach, but did not appreciate the fact that they didn't deal with complex neurology. Um, so I went and got a, a doctorate in chiropractic, but at the same time, uh, concurrently, uh, took all of the uh, all of the classes and uh, sat for the for the practical and the written exams for a board certification in what's called functional neurology, which is kind of like a personal trainer for the brain, uh, and then seven other fellowships and board certifications and things like traumatic brain injury, concussion, childhood neurological uh, disorders, movement disorders, neurochemistry, and vestibular rehabilitation. All these things have basically, after the course of, of you know, getting, getting into my early 30s, wanting to be in a situation where someone like me came to the clinic, uh, I would decrease the number of times that I looked at them and said, I just don't know what to do. So the whole goal of that 10 year journey from 26 to 36 has been gathering as much information as possible to minimize the chances of being lost with someone. Mm. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. And so now you, you have your, your own practice and you practice what's called functional neurology. And without getting into into that too deep, can you just give us a high level of what is functional neurology and how is it different than, say, somebody who goes and sees a, you know, a doctor that specializes in the brain or a neurosurgeon or, you know, even a physiatrist? Uh, I'm familiar with those. What What is a functional neurologist? Yeah, you know, it's kind of like if you took if you took a, a Cairo and a traditional neurologist, a doctor of physical therapy, OT, ABA, even your know, little bit of counseling and neuropsych, and you put them all into a blender. Uh, and then what you do is you try to go, okay, is there a way for me to rehab somebody without drugs or surgery, but specifically turn on individual parts of the brain? So uh, it's it's really it sounds complicated, but it really comes down to to being able to have conversations with each of the sensory systems in the human body. So we all know of five primary sensory systems or what we think are five primary sensory systems, like taste, touch, sight, sound, smell. In reality, all five of those senses are actually secondary, meaning that you can lose them and your brain will figure out how to survive. 
there's only one primary sensory system and it's, it's called your vestibular system or your ability to respond to gravity and to be able to stand upright and move in the world. It's your balance system. So a lot of the times what I'll do with somebody, for instance, if I'm working with about 60% of the people that I see are pediatric because two of the main demographics that I'll work with that most folks are uncomfortable with is, is, is nonverbal aggressive, aggressive or pediatric brain injury. Uh, and then mental health, because it's just those are really, really tough spaces. Um, but if I'm working with, you know, a nine year old that's nonverbal, they may be doing speech therapy for two or three years with the mechanics of the mouth. But most people don't realize the thing that actually builds speech and builds cognition and gives you the on ramp for being able to even do the deductive reasoning and logic that allows you to think of a word is predicated by, can I move my eyes properly and track a moving target? And do I have good balance and can I walk properly? So a lot of the times when I'm doing speech therapy and working with helping someone who's nonverbal learn to speak, I'm actually helping them learn to move because if they can learn to move properly and balance properly and move their eyes properly, uh, that actually turns on the part of the brain that develops into speech down the road. So it's taking some of those concepts of going, and I had a head injury and I can't think clearly because I have so much brain fog. And, you know, the research shows most of the time what's happened is, is you've been hit so hard that you, you can't use your vision properly. So instead of going to the traditional neurologist and having a five minute conversation and being given, you know, a prescription for uh, a medication and then maybe getting a, an advanced diagnostic like an MRI, what would it look like, look like for that content expert and that, that academic expert and that clinical expert to also then say, I'm going to take you straight into therapy and do the therapy myself. Because in the world of neurology, you will never, and I've never heard of it, and if anybody knows it, please send it to me because I want to collaborate with them. I've never, even in my time as a patient, heard of a neurologist that also does therapy and treatment. And in that situation, it, it, you get a loss in, in, in translation and a breakdown in communication. So being able to be the person who not only does the intake exam, the history, the management plan, but also the treatment and the at-home exercises allows me to take the person from beginning to end, uh, kind of like a personal trainer. That's really cool. So that's what you do there. Let's jump briefly into, uh, well, not briefly for the rest of the program, the the whole idea of the Enneagram, because this this seems like it's, it comes out of left field in some ways, but that's not once we get into it. Because you approach the Enneagram uh, from a, a neurology, from a, a brain functionality, and you've got a real interesting approach. I want to talk about your book because you not only talk about it in the book, but you visualize it so beautifully in your book. How, how did you come, come across and get involved in using the Enneagram in your therapy? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I think with, as with most people who got introduced to the Enneagram, it was through a, a pretty hypervigilant friend. Um, and mine was uh, about nine years ago, eight years ago. A really good friend of mine, Sean Champ Smith, uh, which anybody who <laughs> knows Sean knows he's full of energy and full of life. And he kept telling me, man, I, I just have a feeling like this is for you. I, I, I don't know why, but I feel like this is for you. You have to realize, Bob, at this point, I'm, I'm doing 110 credits per calendar year, driving 10 hours round trip per week, dealing with the migraines, married, raising a teenager, and also doing additional postgraduate studies. So wow. when I said I was working too much, I was working too much. <laughs> and 
this guy's telling me, hey, why don't you why don't you spend time reading another book? And I said, I don't have the time. So he gave me an audio book and it was Father Richard Rohr explaining all of the uh, all of the different types. And the very first time that I heard it, I went, man, this sounds a lot like this sounds a lot like basic neuropsych. Like this is this is just the way different lobes of the brain and different regions of the brain will express because when you have a traumatic brain injury the particular unhealthy behaviors associated with some of these numbers will show up based on regions of the brain that get impacted so i'm hearing it and i'm going huh i wonder if there's anything science related or research related around this because sounds really interesting so me being in a neuroscience space and learning neurology i i started to google hard science or research or science-based, especially neuroscience-based resources, and coming up with crickets. And you know, when you Google something and nothing comes up at all, you're like, well, this is, this is weird. So what ended up happening was I went and got a book. I hadn't even seen the imagery yet. I hadn't seen the symbology of the Enneagram. I went and got a book, and the very first time that I sat down with it, I looked at it and I went, well, this is a triadic system, and the brain is a from a very high level, the central nervous system is triadic, but based on the way that this is oriented, it's upside down. So I turned the Enneagram 180 degrees and over the course of about four hours, that very first time I saw the image, had this really profoundly strange and surreal matrix experience where you know I learned Kung Fu. It's like everything downloaded and synergized. And in the space of that evening, I had a, a, an initial concept of what it looked like to actually overlay the entire Enneagram as it's constructed on top of basic brain anatomy for a normal human brain. And the last eight years has been trying to go, is this crazy or is this possible? And then the book that you're talking about, Whole Identity, was the, the, essentially the, the result of, of spending years and years not only trying to go, okay, do the numbers correlate with the brain anatomy? Do they correlate with the neuropsychology? Do they correlate with the, the, the presentation of how people show up in those spaces, healthy and unhealthy? And all of the other things, but also spending thousands of hours studying the Enneagram and going all over the country learning from, uh, you know, 12 different practitioners that are really well known in, in the Enneagram community. And eventually getting to the place where I'm like, you know, I think this is possible to, to use as a, a clinical tool and see if it correlates with physical, mental, emotional, relational, spiritual health and learning about neurotheology, which was actually not a term coined by me. It's by a general gentleman named Andrew Newber, who is a PhD researcher in Connecticut. He's written like eight books on neurotheology, um, but ended up getting into a place where the more and more that I investigated it and the more and more I, I, I used it in clinical practice in terms of correlating it with findings and, and exercise and, and brain exercise, the more it, it proved itself to be relevant. However, it had to be used all at the same time. So for anybody who's curious, when you overlay the Enneagram, the entire Enneagram onto a, a human brain, the brainstem correlates with the gut, the left brain or left hemisphere correlates with the head triad, and the right hemisphere correlates with the heart triad. But you have to use all nine numbers simultaneously because you use your entire brain at the same time in various ways and various efficiencies, kind of like any other you know, band that's got nine members or nine vocalists. Some people sing louder than others depending on the song. But I was changing the concept of going, could we move away from the idea of being a personality type to having a whole identity profile 
and saying, yeah, I'm really efficient as a two or four or six, but statistically in the last three years of doing the scoring method that's shown in the book, the highest percentage I've seen in someone's entire identity of their primary number is 21%. Mm. So, so if 21, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I just said, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, so if, if somebody's looking at their, what we normally say is, you know, the first question that everybody asks when you learn about the Enneagram is what's your number? And I was like, you know, this is the same thing when people were saying I'm a left brain person. And I'm like, well, what happened to the other half of your brain? Like you've, you've got to use your whole brain. So looking at it and going, yes, you are super efficient. And that is your primary way of engaging in the world. But right now, from what I've seen, looking at different ways of approaching it, especially, you know, one of the interesting things is there's not a lot of spaces right now that synergize different fields of the Enneagram, like narrative tradition versus typology, meaning there are a lot of people who in a polarized way absolutely rely on the test. And then there are other people in a polarized way who refuse to acknowledge a test and go, this is primarily, primarily motivation-based. Well, the method that I'm trying to use and kind of the system that I've built is saying, you can use a test as a diagnostic to inform you, not as a diagnosis that defines you. So if that information helps to clarify some, some avenues by which you want to engage, then the way that you actually develop as a person and become self-aware has to be tied to motivations and, and rather than behaviors. And that's where the narrative tradition lends itself really well. So being able to marry different systems and go, man, can I use this, this diagnostic to help me understand kind of the way that I'm, I'm showing up statistically? And then maybe it allows me to start asking really, really good questions rather than just trying to get quick answers. Uh, and that's, that's kind of how we ended up here trying to flesh that out. So give me an, uh, give me an example, Jerome, of what a, a typical uh, way you would use the, the Enneagram with your method. So for instance, someone comes in. So do you, do you actually do um, like counseling if someone's having you know, emotional and, and personal issues or, or is yours truly neurology with someone who has brain injuries or do you do both? So I do a bit of both, but when it really leads into the side of therapy and counseling, I have seven licensed professional counselors that sublease from me in my clinic in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So it turns into a clinical counseling or a therapeutic counseling uh, space, not only because of ethical and moral, but also legal obligation. I defer them to a counselor that's licensed. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody's asking for an Enneagram coaching session tied to how their brain works. I do that all the time. But if somebody's wanting to sit down and say, okay, I've connected and I resonate with a family of origin conversation, or I lead people very heavily towards things like IFS, internal family systems, AEDP, DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy. So I, I help people understand that the spaces of the way that the brain actually creates attachments to both profoundly positive and profoundly negative history is great to, to discover. But if someone wants to unpack a particular trauma, that is, that is not what I'm gonna do from, from an hour by hour session. Um, but helping them to, to kind of learn and discover and, and, and reflect on the landscape of their entire kind of global map, I'll help orient them to that. Because to answer your question, really the biggest thing that I'm doing, more than anything, even before we turn it into a practical application, which we can do, turning it into an at-home exercise and giving specific recommendations 
to exercise specific numbers and specific real estate in the brain, which uh, over the last four years has shown itself to be very, very possible. The very first thing is just really having to have people de-identify and let go of the stronghold that they have on a single number system and mm. also de-identify with an individual diagnosis. Because, you know, the interesting correlation and in, in, in synergy or synonym between Enneagram and patients is when patients come in and they've had a profound association with a particular diagnosis, they become that diagnosis. Their identity is now, I am a migraine patient. I am depressed. I have autoimmune. It's, it's such an identity piece that to get them to de-identify with the diagnosis and learn they're a person, a human experiencing those symptoms is really, really hard, but it's very important. And the same thing happens with the Enneagram, that someone will come in, you'll show them everything that's available to them in terms of a resource of the way that their brain is built and functions, and they'll so heavily, from an ego standpoint, gravitate and get and get magnetized back to that anchor of that home base of their their own number and helping somebody learn hey man you've got you got a whole world available to you and yes kind of like delta is based in atlanta it's headquartered in atlanta but delta flies everywhere all day all the time and the human brain is like that your primary number is your headquarter it's your home base it's where you primarily live and and it's where most of your leadership is really working from, but it doesn't mean that everything else isn't still active. So helping people to to have that entire map, kind of what's shown in the whole identity profile in the book, is more than anything just trying to start the conversation by going, if I'm going to help you with self-awareness, which is going to lead to practical application, which is going to lead to self-care, which is going to lead to effective outcomes and hitting your goals, the first thing that we have to do is stop putting you in such a reductive pigeonholed kind of boxed in space and help you see that there's a much larger world uh, available to you as a human in, in terms of brain function. And once folks start to realize that they, they start to see that that doesn't become daunting, it becomes exciting uh, because there's, there's a world of possibilities that show up when you start to, to be told, no, you're not stuck in a, in, in a single space. You just happen to be really efficient in that, but you're not restricted to that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because the tendency, and I've done it myself and with others, is to really latch on to, well, this is just who I am. Because it does, on on one level, and maybe it's the, the first step and maybe the elementary level, it does help to give a structure and an understanding and a level of self-awareness to say, now it makes sense why I did this as a child or what this, now it makes sense why I do this or now it makes sense. Um, and so... I think we're all kind of looking and wanting to latch on to some sort of structure to make sense of our lives. And what the what the Enneagram did for me, and I know I've heard this from other people, it um, it, it allows you to have grace and forgiveness for yourself and for other people and understand why people might react or function in certain ways. But I think the flip side of that, like you said, is um, that it then can it it can be a way to then say okay this is just who i am now i know now i know why i do certain things and i go on my way living in that um very narrow way of thinking and what i've gotten from your your teaching and your book is that um we have all nine numbers in us we have a whole brain with a right brain left brain and a brain stem 
And they're always functioning on certain levels, some functioning uh, at higher levels than others, like you said. And I think that's that's really important to remember that because that, like you said, opens up a whole new world and way of seeing life and understanding to say, I'm not just this one number who always reacts and will always function this way for the rest of my life. There are ways of living and being that are very different and unique. And um, to be to be able to explore those and be okay with that, uh, for me, um, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, and it's, and it's and I appreciate that. And I think that's that's the heart of it more than anything, Bob. And kind of the the goal of it is, I, I think the majority of the time, whether I'm talking to somebody who is dealing with trauma in their body, mental and emotional. Uh, history that that has been traumatic or you know a lot of people in in the world that we live in now in kind of spiritual spaces working with spiritual trauma and deconstruction and reconstruction there's so many different spaces where when i sit down with someone of any health crisis of any kind and their perspective is that they only have a finite amount of resources the opportunity for them to even remotely engage in a healthy way is so much harder you know, if I if I walked up to somebody who was in a wheelchair who could fully walk and they said to me, I can't do this because I don't have legs or I don't have function in my legs. I only have an upper body. We would look at it and go, but that's that's irrational. It doesn't make sense. You've got that available to you. But what happens in a lot of the neuropsychology and a lot of the world is we've been raised with this idea that we have a limited way of engaging in the world and we can learn a bunch about it. And I am all for everyone being so heavily connected and self-aware with the way that they primarily engage in the world, but learning that we have all of these other muscles that we can exercise, and we're really, really efficient and strong in some muscles, but instead of assuming, oh, I don't have that to use, going, what does it look like for me to engage in that in a healthy way and start to utilize it? I think really simply put, it moves us away from a conversation around capacity and towards a conversation around utilization and going, I have this available to me. How, how do I want to use it in a healthy way in my life? And I think that's, that's you know, just like all the other things that have, have drawn us to the Enneagram, it, it increases our chance of, of more comprehensive and healthy understanding about how we function and engage in the world, especially as we start to learn about, you know, how do these things called attachments work? How do triggers work? And, you know, one of the things I really heavily push for folks to understand, which I didn't see in the Enneagram world, there's, there's not a lot of explanation around the neuropsychology. There's a lot of explanations around identity and, and personality and psychology, but when you understand that neuropsychology, which is a parent category to psychology, helps you to understand how the brain actually forms thoughts and emotions and actions and behaviors, it's really important to understand how much of that is tied to a survival strategy. And when you talk about having grace for somebody, to be able to sit across the table from somebody who's been triggered and have the grace to go, it doesn't feel life-threatening to me, but for that person, it feels legitimately scary and legitimately unsafe and legitimately life-threatening. And my job is to hold space for that person to go, it's not about whether or not I find it a trigger. It's about the fact that you've been triggered for some reason based on your lifetime of lived experiences and how can I support you in healthy ways? Because all we're trying to do is survive and and be safe and, and find ways to thrive and be healthy. And, and it's a lot easier to understand that when we start realizing all of this is, is really just tied to survival strategies and, and finding some degree of safety. 
How do, in your opinion, uh, how how does neurologically and systematically someone? Uh, I've read many things uh, of you know how someone lands on their number. Uh, there's some some practitioners believe it's childhood issues. Some people believe you're born and wired that way. What what's your thoughts on it? Like uh, I'm really good. I'm a really good seven uh, energy. I can perform in that level, and that's kind of where I stay. But I also see myself functioning on other things too, and other numbers and other ways. What what is where does that come from, um, and why are say people in a family very who who were brought up in the exact same environment have different uh, numbers or tend to lean toward different numbers? Is it is it all learned behavior? Gosh, what a great question. And, and you know, I'll, I'll preface it by saying, I, I think in, in my experience, and, and you could take this to really any arena, um, but the Enneagram and, and politics and faith are, are a couple of ones that are pretty easy to see this happen. Um, anytime somebody speaks in absolutes or has a polarized opinion, uh, it's yeah. been my experience that they either don't understand it or they've oversimplified it. Yes, uh, and, and I think to polarize it or speak in an absolute is is just is is unlikely to have the healthiest approach. Um, so I say that to say a lot of folks in the Enneagram world and in neurology and other spaces will say it's just nature or it's just nurture. Well, one of the things that I outline um, in the book is it's it's a fair bet that probably everything in the world, mathematically, from a numerology standpoint, from neurology and Enneagram, and pretty much everything else. Uh, having having a, a trinitarian approach or a triadic approach is probably going to be healthy to see a both and uh, or a few and kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that the the way that the brain works and is built, and I think the way that we end up forming kind of our own personal profile, our own personal stack of of interactions, is not only nature, which is your genetics. It's how you were made in the factory and how you were hardwired at birth. Uh, it is nurture in terms of environmental cues, which is shown in research like mirror neurons and, and the way that we engage with, with other people through interpersonal neurobiology, which a great reference is you know, a guy named V.S. Ramachandran or Dan Siegel, which I can send you the spellings for those for people to find out. But And then the third thing is you've got, so we said nature from a genetic standpoint, nurture from an epigenetic standpoint, how your genes express. And then third is discipline-based environments. And what I mean by discipline-based environments is not corporal punishment. That's a, that's an example of discipline. Uh, I'm talking about how the brain perceives and establishes boundaries and how it determines what its own level of flexibility and kind of what's known as laterality or kind of, if you think about, um, I use Kruger National Park as an example in South Africa. It's the largest park in the world. The animals that are in that don't know they're in a park. It's that big. But if you put a horse in a pen and you tie it to a rope, its flexibility to move, its boundary is different. So all three of those things will create an environment where my genes, my epigenetics, and then also the nature of my experience around healthy or unhealthy boundaries, healthy or unhealthy genetic expression, healthy or unhealthy genes, right? And, and all of that. When those three things are combined, again, every time you look at a triad, you're saying unique and distinct but not separate. So all three of those things intersect. And a really classic example is my twin brother and I. We're identical. We started out as the same embryo. We were the same human being at the beginning, right? Um, My twin brother and I share a lot in common, but we are profoundly different in a ton of ways. 
And we didn't even get our own bed until we were 13. Like when I say we had similar experiences, we had very similar experiences. But I think part of it in understanding how does it end up that people can be in the exact same situation and end up different people. I would ask anybody who has been in a relationship for more than four hours. Uh, I've been married 15 years. Uh, have you ever had a conversation with someone you know really, really, really well, and they had a different perspective than you, and you both had the exact same experience, right? Like if I'm in an argument with my wife or I'm in a space or an experience with my wife, we can finish that experience, have a conversation about it. And even though there was only one encounter, we had two completely different experiences. And that's because the perspective is filtered through our own lifetime of nature, nurture, and discipline-based experiences that have put my brain into a place to go, man, I'm gonna run a, I'm gonna run a program here. And based on all of the protocols that we've built over our life to survive, I'm gonna filter it in my particular dialect. And mm. even though we may speak the same language, people have to understand with the brain and also with the Enneagram, I don't think it's appropriate to say it's a different language that we speak. I think it's appropriate to say it's a different dialect. And when we speak different dialects, it can be really, really confusing, even if you're speaking the same language. And you know, my dad spoke four dialects of Swahili. He could go to one part of uh, one part of Zimbabwe or one part of South Africa speaking the same language. And people would have no idea what he's saying until he switched the dialect and all of a sudden it makes sense. But is it so nuanced? So giving each other the grace and the space to go, man, you've got a lifetime of experiences and your brain is processing 97% of what's happening to you subconsciously. There's mm. a chance that even if the encounter is the same, your program is built off of protocols that kept you alive based on experiences I didn't have. So that, that level of not only our own self-awareness, but understanding everybody's filtering their experiences through a different lens, and that lens is, is pretty dynamic, helps us to know that it's, uh, it, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty complicated thing, but at the same time, it's just stepping back and going, I mean, there's a good chance that I think, feel, and act slightly different than even myself from yesterday, never mind the person that's sitting across the table from me. Mm. That's really good. Uh, and that's that's what I meant by um, having grace with yourself and with other people, uh, because we all see the world through lenses and life experiences, and we just assume without even thinking twice that that's the way everybody does or should. Um, but, you know, again, that's not the way the, the reality of the world is. As you said, it's it, when you begin to see things through a very binary either or good, bad, right, wrong, whatever it might be, um, then that's when you've really simplified life down to um, really non-reality because the reality of every situation and every person and every um, whatever it might be that you're examining or looking at or experiencing has many, many sides to it. It's very complicated. There are thousands of colors um, and yet it's real easy to try to boil it down to one or the other. Um, and that's what I think gets us in real trouble. And I think, uh, you know, we can see that in many in simple ways in the state of our political situation and state of our religious situation many times. And that that's a good segue. Talk to me briefly about neurotheology. Um, and I know, obviously, you come from a faith background. Many, many listeners to this program are uh, either in faith, faith structures or trying to find their way out of certain faith structures into others. 
What talk to me about neurotheology and what that is and and what is that meant to you? Yeah, it's um neurotheology is is a field that was started about 20 years ago by a guy named Andrew Newberg where he basically wanted to say is there a way for the science and the neuroscience specifically to explain what happens to a person during a spiritual experience? And that's of any faith background. Um, uh, for me, the, the way that I fell in love with it was because I do functional neurology, the, the concept of the idea was, are there ways to be able to not only explain, but reinforce, but also have opportunities to either reconcile or heal uh, different spaces with regards to spiritual relationships. Um, and there's so much that we could go into there, but from a, from a really brief answer, um, you know, my, my experience in the clinical world, my experience in the Enneagram world, and my experience in the spiritual spaces that I grew up in, I'm, I'm a recovering charismatic uh, and Pentecostal person, uh, is that I felt like I was raised in the shallow end in a lot of those spaces. Mm. And life put me into the deep end and I nearly drowned uh, several times. Uh, and that, that particular experience was that there were really good, well-intentioned people, but I felt very ill-equipped and unresourced. So I learned the neurology, I learned the in-depth side of the Enneagram, you know, but from the spiritual standpoint, I keep looking at this going, man, I, I just can't see God or divine or universal or whatever the language is that feels good for somebody. I, I don't find that we are capable, I couldn't imagine that we are capable of such profound things as making an iPhone or, or creating the technology that's allowing us to have this phone call right now and not being able to go, there's a way that I could exercise my brain that would help me be healthier as a spiritual person. So mm -hmm. neurotheology, um, the, the kind of the, the through statement or the through line for, for everything that I do for all of the businesses, whether it's whole identity for the Enneagram, it's neurotheology, it's Thrive Neuro Health as a clinic. The, the statement is where neuroscience and self-care meet practical application. So everything's coming back to if I'm having an Enneagram conversation with you, a clinical conversation with you, or a spiritual conversation with you, regardless of, and I'm a believer of perennial tradition and, and obviously I'm indoctrinated into the, the world of, of that space. I, I am a firm believer that I, <laughs> I to give you a caveat, um, I, I am the, per the person who is a chiropractor who can't be adjusted because three times that I've been adjusted have been put into the hospital. So what happens when you are raised in a world that says Jesus always works and adjustments always work until they don't? And then what's the answer when that happens? I keep looking at this situation going, well, what happens if that particular space has a higher probability of creating a trauma for somebody. Is there a way for somebody to engage with God in ways that are unorthodox or alternative? So longer conversation for a longer time, but I kept wanting to come back to, is there a way I can sit down with somebody using healthy neuroscience, connecting to self-care and connecting it through practical application to say, look, I don't know very many people on the planet who don't believe they have a soul. And if they don't, this content is not really for them. Um, but if they've got a soul, what are they doing to be healthy in that space and to connect with that? Because we all pretty much can very quickly say how we're doing from a physical health standpoint. We can give you kind of a bar or a litmus test. But if somebody says, how's my mental and emotional and spiritual health? I think the resources around asking those questions and 
resourcing someone with a practical application to answer those questions has been a little bit more scarce. So the whole world of neurotheology is just trying to kind of navigate my way through the dark in that as, as another another person on the journey and, and, and trying to connect some dots through through practical self-care application in neuroscience. Yeah, that's so good. It's so needed, Jerome. I, I Do you believe, and as I do, that um, that there's a huge shift and a transformation that's taking place all over the world as far as um, this this idea and concept of of faith and integration of of what we know and how we're evolving as human beings, um, you know it's it's so sad. I know that you know and have wrestled with with this yourself. But you know it, it seems like there's not a week or a month that doesn't go by that you have some either someone that you know who's a person of faith who has died or committed suicide or is a, a leader who has done the same and um, you know, you you get to a point where you know either in your own life or these other people who are saying, you know, in my case or in your case, who were brought up in a Christian uh, kind of construct that well, the Bible is the answer and Jesus is the answer and you know things are going to work out and you know outside of that there is no truth and you know just this whole type of rhetoric in my opinion until you're faced with those realities of saying well it didn't work it didn't it didn't provide and didn't save either the person's life or um didn't didn't help me to deal with the things that i needed to deal with and i think the sense of shame for people the sense of well you didn't trust or you didn't do it right or you've got some sin in your life um i think there's people are rejecting that especially a younger generation in my opinion and an older generation and people in general but do you feel like there's a shift and that there's you know an evolution in that and people are are starting to awaken to maybe there is something better and there is something different and it's something integrative that they don't have to give up on their faith but they actually can evolve to a higher state of consciousness? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's, the, the first thing that comes to mind when you mention that, Bob, is, you know, the, the, the interesting thing for me is, you know, I, I joke with folks, I was anointed with enough oil to bathe a cow. It never got rid of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and all of the idea around saying the prayer of Jabez about 75 times a day is cute until you bury three out of four parents and you watch people lose kids and you see people die from cancer after three weeks of diagnosis. Like the reality is if we keep putting the whole construct of faith into a binary conversation of it always works and then you can't explain when it doesn't, or sometimes it doesn't and if it doesn't, it might be your fault. You know, all of these spaces, they just don't sit with the human psyche. They don't sit with the way that the world works. And if we study things like, I mean, not to go on a tangent, but if you study things like quantum physics and quantum entanglement and the way the world interacts, the world is so beautiful and so complex and so interesting that to distill it to this idea of you only have a few decades on the planet and you probably screwed it up, I think is so naive. And, you know, even if you look at it from a, a spiritual standpoint, there's not a single time. If you prescribe to, to faith in Judeo-Christianity, let's just anchor in that for a second. If Jesus is perfect gospel and the person of Jesus is perfect gospel according to scripture and according to Christianity, there's not a single time ever in scripture that Jesus introduces shame, fear, or intimidation when he is met with someone's pain. If right. he connects with somebody who's suffering, 
there's never a time he introduces shame, fear, or intimidation, ever. So that in and of itself negates the majority of the conversations and the teachings that are being used in spaces where people are really hurting. But if you step back from that, I think the thing that some of this work I hope for and I endeavor for is one of the things, whether you're in a faith tradition or you're not, that every human being on the planet can attest to is very few of us have been taught how to suffer well, how to deal with pain, how to grieve, how to deal with the theology of suffering. Like we have all of this work around theodicy that says, how does God allow suffering? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how do I deal with suffering? Because there is a guarantee (laughs) that I'm going to be dealing with pain. Well, the interesting thing is, and, and we won't unpack it in this conversation, but the thing that allows you to connect the Enneagram, spirituality, every faith tradition, and also neurology, is the human brain develops as a result of how it processes, reconciles, and redeems its own pain-based experiences. Mm. The frontal lobe in the brain, the executive decision maker, the person who allows us to understand how we're feeling, connect with our thoughts, feel what we're doing, be embodied in our space, connect with our physical experience, every single process that happens for a human being is going through the real estate that eventually allows us to develop self-awareness And that self-awareness is in a part of the brain that has to be onboarded through understanding what the difference between pain and pleasure is, what Mm. the difference between risk and reward, cost and benefit. And if you don't have any training and understanding or equipping or resourcing on how to process pain, and then an entire world of faith in multiple traditions is telling you not only to not acknowledge your pain, not acknowledge your suffering, but if you do encounter it, to rebuke it, to resist it, to chastise it, to condemn it, or if you associate with it, to understand that it's probably your fault and you need to own some degree of responsibility for something you had nothing to do with. I didn't ask for a key or email permission. It is not because there is sin in my life. It's because I was run over by a car, okay? <laughs> you know, so one of these things when we're looking at this, I think is really helpful, and this is kind of the way that I'll summarize it for you. I think what's happening in the world and what encourages me and gives me hope for people of all types of faith, even the people that are walking away from faith and becoming healthier versions of themselves as a result, which I think God is more interested in someone being healthy than about somebody in a leadership position being righteous or right. Mm. Uh, For me, what has happened is I learned that through a lot of my experiences, I had associated my disappointment with people and their utilization of the particular faith tradition I grew up in with God themselves. So I think what people are learning now is they're separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. They're separating the negative experiences they had with human beings and realizing, like from my example, I didn't have an issue. I thought I had an issue with God and the Holy Spirit and the way the Holy Spirit operated because the Holy Spirit never showed up for me and never healed me. But what I had an issue with was the performance-based culture that prostituted the Holy Spirit and the divine femininity that exists in that space Mm. just for show and for excitation and for all of the excitement that happens in the space of a charismatic experience and stepping back and going, is my issue with God or is my issue with the way that God was presented to me? And if I set that stuff aside, just like we do in learning, you know, what it's like to be with a good boss and a bad boss or a good 
parent and a bad parent. My experience growing up in church not only allowed me to really understand what I loved about God, but also what I didn't want to be in terms of the way that people used and demonstrated and kind of uh, portrayed God to be. So separating those spaces and going, and I, I think it's so possible to be heavily spiritually connected to this idea of divinity and still let go of, of kind of the mechanisms and the, and the process that I was raised in and the traditions I was raised in and develop healthier personal strategies because, you know, it's, it's my relationship with God, not my relationship based on the protocol that I was asked to follow. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That that's good. And that's so needed. And I find um, that that so resonates not only with me, but so many people that I talk to uh, and, and deal with and engage with um, I think where there's a real hunger for um, a non-binary and a very open uh, awareness that, you know, we are so different and unique and um, this idea of absolutes and certainty um, is really not only dangerous, but it can be really damaging to people's psyche uh, in the long run. And the idea of, you know, that we're born broken and we're born sinful and we're born, you know, that uh, we won't we don't have time to get into all the shame based stuff that religion heaps on people Um that uh, there really is a loss of personal identity that when people are awakened to that, I believe, and they're awakened to the reality of, hey, maybe I'm not that evil and wicked after all. And maybe if I would focus on some of my own goodness uh, and, and, and be willing to accept that on some level, um, there can be a lot of healing that takes place. Uh, and that cognitive dissonance that people experience when they experience that based on what maybe their construct taught them um, is, is a, it, it can be a real, uh, it can be a real interesting journey for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is why the, the very first page in the book says you are capable of wholeness. It's mm -hmm. not, it's That's not good. about, being, it's not about being less broken. It's about becoming more whole. You know, yes. if, if you allow people in every dynamic, mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally, and spiritually, to understand that you can move away from the concept of trying to simply, you know, minimize and do damage control. I, I would love for folks to be able to engage in the world and, and move away from the idea of constantly triaging their life uh, to moving into a place of going, I'm so, my, my body and my mind and my heart and soul are so capable of profound i mean i work with 75 year old stroke patients four years post-stroke who have no awareness of the left side of their body who within six weeks are walking independently on their own mm. like the the idea of what is capable to us and the dissonance and the disconnect between being told i can do all things through christ but then i'm not capable of avoiding my own sin nature I'm like, there's so much, anyways, it's like just trying to get into a place where somebody goes, I just want to keep reiterating, I'm not trying to tell you that you're going to avoid pain. I'm not trying to give you some idea of, of a message that says I can show you how to live a life pain-free. What I'm trying to do is help people understand that their bodies and their brains are so damn gifted at being able to handle those situations innately that if they understand how to turn those things on and how to resource those things, because they started with the conversation of what's possible rather than what's not, 
there's such a different perspective that happens when somebody's like, well, the plane's going down. How do I enjoy it before we crash? And it's, it's, there's just, there's, there's, the body will respond so differently when it goes. So you're saying there's a chance. You're saying that there's a way to do this. And, and it, may not, it may not be care, carefree and, and, and pain-free, but, man, it can still be life-giving. You know, and that's a, that's a really important thing to, to be able to connect with, to go, so you, I, can, I can still hold joy and grief. And if anybody wants to see the, the gospel according to Pixar, watch the last 10 minutes of Inside Out. <laughs> like, that's good. That, that is the nature of what we are trying to accomplish as human beings, is, is saying you can, you can hold both, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yes, that's good. Well, Dr. Jerome, this has been um, so, so rich. Thank you for, for taking your time out of your busy schedule. How can people uh, get in touch with you? How can they find your book? Can you, can you give us some of that info? Yeah, absolutely. The, fortunately, the, the URL that they can use that will take them to all of the sites is drjerome.com, just D-R-J-E-R-O-M-E.com. Uh, when you go to that, it's going to forward you to thriveneuro.com, and it'll have not only the Thrive Neuro Health for the clinic, Thrive Neurotheology for the spiritual and neuroscience resources with my older brother, Pastor Carl. Um, but then also the wholeidentity.com uh, landing page where you can still uh, get the book. We're on the third print right now, and we're about halfway through that print run. So it's been really humbling and flattering to see the response. But we do still have some copies left. But everything can be found uh, at drjerome.com. And if anybody has any questions or wants to reach out, every one of those sites has a, uh, a contact submission where you can send us an email. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate um, what you're doing. Um, I just want to encourage you, Dr. Jerome, to, to keep doing what you're doing, keep helping people. And those there are those of us out here that are listening, that are benefiting, um, and that are hungry for the kind of work you're doing. So thank you for doing it. Keep doing it. And uh, blessings on your family and your kids and your wife and your brothers and all the great stuff you have going on in Atlanta there. Likewise. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Bob. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, sir.